The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. I'm going to do something that I usually don't do in a sermon. I'm going to tell a joke. So Noah, Noah decides that it's been a long time since he has hung out with Moses and Jesus up in heaven, and it's a nice summer afternoon up there. and. He decides to text Moses and Jesus and say, hey, you guys want to come over and hang out, and I'll take us all for a boat ride on the glassy sea. And so Moses and Jesus respond. They set the time. They come on over, and, and uh, they get the ark ready and start to head out. Now, there's something that you need to know about Noah that is not in the Bible. Noah was had a bad habit of, uh, well, he was a braggart. He was always talking about all this great stuff that he had done, you know. And, and, and Moses and Jesus, they, they know this about their pal Noah, so they're willing to kind of, so anyway. They're there, they are out on the glassy sea. Noah sets up his grill off the stern of the ark, and he's starting to, to, to grill some veggie burgers. And uh, 
some lamb kebabs. And um, while they're out there, Moses is getting tired of listening to Noah going on and on and on about how he has got to be, he had to be the best animal tamer in the whole world because for 40 days and 40 nights he had to keep the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, separate from, from all the other critters. They wanted to gobble them up. And the hardest thing was keeping the wolves from eating all the sheep 40 days and 40 nights. Moses finally goes, look, that's stuff that happened eons ago. Watch this. Moses goes up into the bow of the ark. And just like Charlton Heston, he sticks his, his, that staff up in the air, and the waters of the glassy sea part before them. And then, after a moment, he lowers that staff, and the waters returned to their wanton flow. Pretty impressive. And Jesus says, well, you're not going to outdo me, old man. And he gets out of the ark, starts walking across the water, power walking across on top of the water. And as he's power walking across the glassy sea, Noah and Moses start to notice that he's sinking bit by bit, every quarter mile out there, he's sunk down to his knees and he's still power walking. And Noah says to Moses, so what's up with that? Why is he sinking? And Moses says, don't you know the last time he did that, he didn't have holes in his feet. You are a tough crowd. <laughs> you know, it's, it's easier, I think, for most of us to grapple with Jesus, to grapple and wrestle with Jesus through his teaching and preaching and through his deeds that brought him to the cross. It's easier for us to grapple with him through his teaching than it is to encounter him in the miracles. That's for many reasons. But one sign of the fact that I think it's a lot harder for us to relate to Jesus through the miracle stories is the modern habit of coming up with so-called natural explanations of the miracles. And in particular, over the last 100, 150 years or so, preachers have struggled to offer their congregations natural, believable explanations of what was going on in any miracle story. So for example, the feeding of the 5,000, which we just heard, the feeding of the 5,000, it's often explained as a miracle of sharing. The crowd is so moved by Jesus' willingness to use the meager gifts of two loaves and, or five loaves and two fish that this young boy brings that they, they're so moved that they dig into their own backpacks and bust out the white wine and cheese to share all around with everybody. So this miracle of sharing, that's how the miracle of the 5,000 feeding is, is often explained. 
And the truth be told, there's, that, that's a respectable, I think that's at least a respectable approach. Um, but today's story of Jesus walking on the water sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in order to catch up with his disciples, rowing against a contrary wind, well, one believable explanation that has gained some currency and is taken seriously in some quarters is that Jesus is actually walking on a sandbar in the Sea of Galilee that the disciples just don't know about. Jesus is walking on a sandbar. Well, I think that's pretty thin gruel. <laughs> we want to explain the miracles. We want to explain the miracles because they bump right up into all kinds of presuppositions we have. They bump right up against the worldview we use in the 21st century to explain and understand everything all around us, a worldview shaped by science and technology. We're always going to have problems with these miracle stories, however, if we want to use our 21st century worldview as the key to explaining these stories. Because these miracle stories, these miracles, are something wholly other, wholly beyond human explanation. These stories are told as demonstrations of who God is. They are told as stories of who God is, of what kind of God God is. God is both a God much bigger than any of our capacities and at the same time a God who is near at hand. So, after Jesus' death and resurrection, his friends, his followers, those who had, had looked to him for hope and strength, in their puzzlement and fear and anxiety, they rushed back to their scriptures in order to try to understand what had happened in the death and resurrection of Christ. And of course, there was no New Testament at that point. There was no New Testament at that point. The Bible for the early Jesus believers is, of course, what we call the Old Testament. And there's a, it gets a finer point than that. The Bible that they used was mostly a translation because by the first century, most Jews now spoke, what, what language did Jews speak in the first century? Most Jews. They spoke Greek. Most Jews lived outside of Palestine at that point, in the wider Roman world around the Mediterranean. And by that time, they had grown up speaking Greek. 
And like any young Jewish kid today, they would go to, to Hebrew school to learn a little bit of Hebrew. But that's not the language that most Jews around the world used. When they went to synagogue, the synagogue service was in Greek. And the Jews of Alexandria in Egypt, starting around the year 250 BCE, recognized that they had to translate the scriptures. So the first great translation project in human history is the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek, initiated by the Jews of Alexandria. And this was the Bible that Jesus' followers read, including the gospel writers. Now, you have a present in your bulletin, and it has a strange little marking on the top of it. Please find the present. It's this half sheet. So this translation, this ancient translation into Greek, is known as the Septuagint. And I'm not going to explain the story to you because that'll take me a while. But um, this was the, the, the Bible, this was the version of the Bible that Matthew used. And when he studied scripture, and you bet he studied scripture, he came across this passage in Job. And this is my crack at translating it. How can a mortal be righteous in the sight of the Lord? For if someone wishes to judge the Lord, no way will the Lord pay attention to him. For the Lord is wise in his thinking, powerful and great. Who's tough enough to go up against the Lord? This is the one who causes mountains to age without their knowing it and can furiously churn them into pieces who can shake what is under heaven to its foundations and rattle its gates. This is the one who can speak to the sun, and it does not rise, seal up the stars in a bottle, who alone stretched out the sky and walks upon the sea as though on dry ground, who made the Pleiades and Venus and Arcturus and the chambers of the south, who does great and inscrutable things, things both glorious and extraordinary, without number. If the Lord passed over me, I would certainly not see him. And if he went by me, I wouldn't even know. This passage from Job in the Hebrew text reads something like, God is the one who tramples upon the waters. It's a, or tramples through the waters. It's a different idea altogether than what we see in this Greek text. This sits in the background of Matthew in his imagination. This, this is part of the imaginative use of telling the stories of the miracles shaped by the way the early Jesus believers ran back to their Bibles and read them and studied them because they believed that Jesus is the one in whom we meet God. And so this story of Jesus walking upon the water via Job, the influence of Job, is meant to identify Jesus 
as not simply a teacher, not simply as the friend of sinners. He is all of that. But he is also the one who stretched out the heavens. He is God. He is the one who sent the Pleiades and the morning star and the evening star and so forth, spinning into gracious orbit. God is the one we meet in Jesus, the very God who can trample the mountains if God chooses. And so when the disciples see Jesus coming across the water, in, in Matthew's telling of what happens, they see Jesus coming across the water, and they reach for the best natural explanation they can find. They knew there was no sandbar there. They were fishermen. But they look at this guy coming, and they say, ah, it's a ghost. It's a phantasm. And Jesus then assures them by reaching back into scripture. You remember Moses at the burning bush? He's terrified. He does not want to respond to this voice speaking to him from the burning bush. And this voice is saying to him, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is trying to get out of it. And he says to this voice in the burning bush, well, they're going to want to know who sent me. Who are you? And the voice responds, I am he. I am the one who is. And so Jesus assures these people across the water, terrified in the boat, using the same words that God spoke to Moses out of the bush, but this time in Greek. I am he. I am the one. And they recognize that voice. And they are assured. One of Luther's colleagues was a guy named Melanchthon. And Melanchthon said this, to know Christ is to know his benefits. In other words, Melanchthon argued that faith is the process of learning how to use Christ. It's a very practical way of thinking about things. And that is exactly what Peter does here. Peter uses Christ. He knows that he cannot of his own accord do anything, and so he says to Jesus, command me so that I have the strength to come to you. I will do as you are doing if you bid me come. He does until he sees the strength of the water and wind. And then in fear, he begins to sink. When Jesus reaches into the water and grabs him and pulls him out, he says, hey, you little faither, why did you doubt? And the word that is used there is not the kind of word that refers to intellectual doubts about things. It's a word, rather, that refers to very practical considerations. Uh, 
years ago. I've told you this before. I served up in central Ontario, four little congregations. I won't tell you all that again, but I served four little congregations up there uh, as, a, as a, a pre-seminary student. These congregations were struggling to find pastoral leadership, and so a bunch of us were sent to do this. And by the way, we were told that we got to volunteer. This was a volunteer opportunity for us, so, so there was no salary or anything for us. And halfway through the summer, my brakes went on my old VW van. And I had to cough up quite a bit of the money I had in order to pay for those brakes. Now, it meant I was going to have trouble figuring out how to buy gas coming up in a very short period of time. And I was looking at seeing if I could grab a gig in a restaurant as a busboy or something to get some money. And um, I had two baptisms coming up on the next Sunday, 80 miles away. And I, that Sunday morning, I got to church, and, and I, I don't pray this way very often, but I said, Lord, you want these kids baptized. I know you do. You're going to have to help me here, because I don't think I got enough gas to get there. And then I led the service in my first church, the, the first service of the morning in Midland. After the service, this German guy named Manfred Dassar, big tall guy, comes up to me and he says, Don, we thought you might be needing this about now. And he hands me an envelope. I open it up, 300 Canadian and one very crisp new looking US 50. And that got me up to Bracebridge for those baptisms and then some. Trust in God is practical, as is doubt in God. Do we have the confidence that God will supply what we need as we walk into the future we believe God has called us to? That is for Matthew, in his telling of the story, a key. And I believe it remains a key for the people of Holy Trinity. As you walk into the future God has in store for you, you will find yourselves far from shore. I know you will. You will find yourselves far from shore. You will find yourselves in new situations that may scare you. But oftentimes, we don't understand. We don't understand that to follow Jesus into storms far from shore is not at all unusual. It's what we're called to be and do. As you are faithful in God's future, you will always be, to some extent, farther from shore than feels comfortable. And some of you, may find yourselves even being commanded to walk on water. As you do, as you encounter these situations in your future together, I remind you that Jesus is God-made practical. The one we meet walking upon the waters in the dead of night is the God-made practical who wishes 
to give us what we need to step into the future despite our fears. May it be so for you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.